For most of us, it doesn't take very long after we've become a believer in Jesus for us to encounter this question, how does God operate in the true Christian's life? How, how does God do that? And the reason is because we see so many different experiences. Have you ever met that person that it seems like no matter what happens, they get a miracle every time? And you're just like, how does that work? That doesn't happen for me. What is going on? You know, is that how God operates in the true Christian's life? There's other people that feel very much like God has gives them clear direction. Decision-making is a piece of cake. They just go right onward and upward, and you're just like, how, how do they get that kind of guidance? There's other people that have roads marked with suffering, and it seems like no matter what they do, the next thing around the curve is yet another difficulty or trial or hardship, and they're wondering, how is God working or operating in my life. And there's many people that don't have great crises or great insights or great miracles, and they're wondering, is this what God does? Am I having God operate in my life? It's a good question, isn't it? How does God operate in the true Christian's life? I invite you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of this letter this morning. And in doing so, hopefully we'll gain some insights to answer that question of how God operates in the true Christian's life. Because some of the things that happen for Paul form patterns for us. Uh, others do not, and we'll try to shake out which is which. This is a wonderful little letter, very compact. It's just stuffed with good things. Uh, Titus is mentioned a, a dozen or so times, depending on how you count, 12 or 13 uh, times in the Bible. Um, he was a companion of Paul's, a Gentile who was likely saved under Paul's ministry up in Syrian Antioch. Uh, though he's curiously not mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts, Titus was a faithful ministry partner of Paul's throughout Paul's ministry. Uh, particularly, Paul was, or Titus was present at the meeting in Jerusalem when they were debating about how Jewish the gospel was. And in fact, Paul mentions this in Galatians to say, Titus being a Gentile was not forced to be circumcised. Uh, and the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, recognized that that was not part of the gospel. Uh, he was active in the collection of money for famine relief. Paul sent him to Corinth on more than one occasion to straighten out the problems in that church. They needed a couple of different visits and probably even more. <laughs> uh, now, we need to know that Paul had gone to prison in Rome where he had written the prison epistles, but now at the time of the writing of this letter, he has been released. One of his first stops upon his release was this island of Crete, a fascinatingly troubled place if ever there was one. 
And as he travels continuing past Crete, he goes to Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece, visiting, revisiting churches like Colossae, Philippi, and Ephesus. And along the way, he sends Titus back to Crete to provide leadership for a group of churches that are struggling both with truth and how to live out that truth. Now, there's some reasons why this little letter that you hold in your hands is so valuable. Let me share with you four reasons why. First, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this letter so that what you're holding is the very Word of God. We shouldn't just run over that. Wow, God's Word. Second, God has preserved His Word in such a way so that centuries after this letter was written, you can read it and in your own language. (laughs) That's a remarkable thing. It bears witness to the fact that we should take up and read. Third, this letter is about truth. I'm going to tell you right now that there will be stuff in this letter that you'll have a hard time accepting. Even some things that we're going to talk about today. Truth is the commodity that is most lacking in our world and a commodity most needed even when our hearts are not inclined toward the truth. And so it should be read because it's about truth. Finally, just as important as truth is being able to live by the truth. You see, the beauty of truth is turned into a putrid ugliness when the very people who proclaim the truth do not live by it. And so one of the items in this letter is a call to match up and even some instruction in how to match up our lives to the truth that we embrace. So, in this little letter, we will hear from God. Let that settle in. We will hear from God. We'll hear truth from Him, and we will be called to live out that truth. Briefly, chapter 1 is going to focus on leaders in the church. Chapter 2 will focus on members of the church in relationship to one another. And chapter 3 will focus on the church's mission in the world. But all of it is about how to live and think as a true Christian. I want to share with you a couple of people's thoughts about Titus. Um, This is Martin Luther says of Titus, this is a short epistle, but a model of Christian doctrine in which, it is, in which is included in masterly fashion all that is necessary for a Christian to know and live by. And the picture on the left is in Florence, Italy. I sent this to my brother and I said, here's a picture of a famous Christian couple along with Martin and Katie Luther. Another statement about Titus is from Harry Ironside, who was for many years the pastor of Moody Memorial Church. 
Never was there a time when the necessity of practical piety was so marked as in the days in which our lot is cast. He's talking about living out the truth. Never has it been more important to live out the truth that we say we believe. Loose doctrine makes for loose living. On the other hand, it is quite possible to contend earnestly for fundamental principles when the life is anything but consistent with the profession. He's saying it's got to line up. We've got a problem here, and this letter is designed to line truth up with living, that our profession and our practice match up. So with that in mind, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. We'll read just the first four verses of this letter, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Please be seated. I'm going to suggest here that God's operation in Paul's life provides a pattern for how he operates in ours. We're asking the question, how does God operate in the true Christian's life? Well, let's look at how he operated in Paul's life and see if there isn't some patterns that will help us know how he operates in ours. How does Paul describe himself? He describes himself, first of all, as a servant of God. To whom do we belong? That's key to answering how we will live. If we answer the question, I belong to myself, that's going to have a whole set of characteristics in how you live. Some people have addictions. If they live according to, they they say, I'm a servant of my addiction, that's going to make a difference in how they live. Some people say, I live for pleasure, I live for money, I live for my work, I live for my uh, relationships I have with people. Paul answered that question very clearly. He was a slave of God. A slave of God. And his answer to that question determined how... He lived. He also describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was sent by Jesus Christ himself. He met Jesus on the Damascus road. He's my servant. The Lord appears to Ananias and says, He's my servant to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so, in Paul's description of himself, we see how God operates in, in Paul's life. He's He's a slave of God. He's going to do whatever God wants him to do. And God has sent him. And he's going to go where he's sent. Now, is there a pattern here for us? I think so. But we need to be cautious. 
None of us should claim the office of apostleship. That's done and gone. But we are sent. Jesus has sent us. The the key root of the idea of apostle is sent one. And Jesus has sent us into the world and we are called to serve him. If you want to know how God operates in the true Christian's life, first of all, there must be a yielding to say, God, I'm your slave. And secondly, Jesus, I'll go where you send me. When you do those two things, you will find that God is operating in your life. Now, for what purpose did God make Paul into who he was? There's two key purposes that are given here in this first verse of this letter. The first first reason, the first purpose of Paul's life is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. In other words, there are people that are called elect, that means chosen, chosen by God, but they're not Christians yet, and, and, and Paul is called by God to bring those to faith. Now, in case you're doubting about that, you wonder, well, did God do choosing before people existed? The answer is yes. This is one of those truths that we have a hard time understanding, comprehending. I don't pretend to say that I know everything about it, but I do know some of the testimony of Scripture on the subject. Let me share with you some. John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Or Acts 13, 18, Paul's preaching, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Him before the foundation, not just before we existed, but before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's saying, we know that you were chosen because when we spoke, it, something happened that was more than just me speaking words. God took that word and brought along with it power and Holy Spirit and full conviction so that you believed. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So Paul's purpose when it says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, 
is that he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to bring the elect to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of his life. He's got a second purpose here. Do you see it there at the end of verse 1? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. He has a purpose of building up these elect in the knowledge of the truth. Now this phrase, knowledge of the truth, is used by Paul in several places to speak of saving knowledge. And it begins at the moment of salvation and it keeps growing. For example, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Timothy 2.25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Timothy 3.7, talking about false teachers, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's about saving knowledge that begins at the moment of salvation and continues throughout our Christian experience. This is in two dimensions, of course, right? One is cognition. We know more about God. We know the facts of the plan of salvation. That would be important, right? But it's also knowledge as a relationship. If you look at the word knowledge through the Bible, you would see that it's quite often used to describe intimacy, an intimate relationship between people or between a person and God. But the idea of knowledge is experiential. And God's design for that knowledge of the truth, notice at the end of verse 1, which accords with godliness. God's design for this building up in truth is to have the goal, not just to have in our minds crammed with facts, but to have the goal that we become godly people. This is common throughout the scriptures in 1 Timothy 6.3. Paul talks about the teaching that accords with godliness. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God hasn't called us to impurity, but in holiness. Or 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory. So, just as election, God's choosing us before the foundation of the world, is not salvation until there is faith in the truth of the gospel... We also are not arriving at the goal of godliness until there is obedience to the truth of the gospel. So Paul's ministry, the operation of God in Paul's life, was for Paul to be a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for two purposes. To help those people whom God has called to salvation become Christians, to believe, and then to help them grow in the knowledge of the truth so that they become a godly people. That was God's operation in Paul's life. Do you see the pattern? God has a purpose for all of his elect to come to faith and to grow in the knowledge of the truth. This leads to what we might call a connected life 
that is a life in which what we believe and how we live is perfectly connected. That was Paul's passion, and it ought to be ours. And it's what God wants to do. It's how God actually operates in the true Christian's life. There's two applications that emerge from just this first verse. One is there's true truth, and there's a godliness that comes by truth. Uh, This was in operation in Paul's life, and it's the pattern for how he operates in all of us who love him. That is, we love the truth, but we also love to have our lives match up with that truth. Second application, God begins something grand with election in eternity past. He enables something grand in leading us to faith. And then he continues something grand in ever leading us to a knowledge of the truth, both in what we live, believe and in how we live. Salvation is more than the moment of faith. It includes it, but it's more than that moment of faith. It includes a before, election, And it includes an after, growing in the knowledge of the truth unto godliness. God's operation in Paul's life provides a pattern for how he operates in ours. Now let's look at verses 2 and 3. God's operation in our lives has a goal, it has an origin, and it has a means. Let's look at these three. The goal stated right here at the beginning of verse 2, in hope of eternal life. We can know eternal life here and now, though we are not yet with the Lord in glory, we can live in the certain hope of that eternal life. How was it that Jesus prayed in John 17? That they may know you the only true, this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To be able to walk with Jesus on a daily basis, moment by moment basis, gives us greater sense of the reality of eternity and the joys that lie ahead and the certainty of the hope that we have. This is what God's operation in our lives does for us. Though we are not yet with the Lord in glory, we live in the certain hope of that life. You ever met someone who's just so excited about their walk with the Lord, it, they, they, they almost glow. What's going on there? What's going on there is that they have come to a place where they recognize this hope of eternal life. And it's more real to them than the ordinary work-a-day life that they're living. That's the goal, the hope of eternal life. Now let's look at the origin. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. What's the origin? More more specifically, who is the origin? It is God. Let us never forget that salvation has its origin in God, not in us. Some of us have a faith that hasn't matured enough. It needs to mature to the place where we recognize that stuff happened before we existed. <laughs> and when we ask the question, how big is God? 
once we answer the question rightly, well, he's in charge of everything. Then we can understand his plan, not just for our lives personally, but for the ages. Now, it says here, which God who never lies. We'll find this out next week, but the people of Crete were notorious for lying. Uh, What Paul is getting right out in front of is God is not pulling a fast one over on you. You know, the skeptic is, uh, is, will, will likely say to you, oh, you believe in the flying spaghetti monster. <clears throat> and he doesn't really exist. And when you go to die, that's it. There's nothing. And you're going to be surprised when you die and there's nothing. That's what the skeptic will tell you. Paul is saying, God, listen, never lies. He never lies. So what he has told us in his book about what he has done for us in Jesus Christ is a certainty of fact. He never lies. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man. Hebrews 6.18, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So when Satan comes with those doubts, did God really say? Or is God real? Come back to this verse. And read it out loud to yourself. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This idea, God made the promise before the ages began, is a bit of a wordplay here. It's He promised before the ages began, literally promised before the times of the ages, and it's made known in its own time. This is the second reference in his many verses that God is active toward us before we ever existed. He elects to salvation, and then there is faith and growth in the word, and then there is eternal life, which God promised before the ages began. So think about it. He is up to something before the creation of the world. He prompts faith in us and he leads us to eternal life. Just stop and ponder for just a second about the vastness of God's plan. Second Timothy 1.9 God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, there's a a covenant that has lasted forever. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me 
before the foundation of the world. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, and this is the will of him who sent me. I should lose nothing of all he's given me, but raise it up at the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is being stated here in Titus 1 and through the scriptures that I've just mentioned is that God made an et- God the Father made a covenant in eternity past with God the Son to redeem human beings. I love how John MacArthur puts it. It's a long quote, but because I like it so much, I'm going to read it all to you. Here's what MacArthur says. The Father, God, says to the Lord Christ in eternity past... I love you, I love you so much, I want to give you something, and what I want to give you is a redeemed humanity. I want to create a race of people, and I want to redeem them, and I want to give them to you as a gift. And I want to give them to you to love you and adore you and honor you and praise you and worship you forever and ever. That's why there is a salvation, because God predetermined in eternity past to give a love gift to the Lord Jesus, and everybody who is saved is a part of that elect and chosen, predestined group of humanity that's going to be the love gift from the Father to the Son. That's why nobody ever gets saved unless the Father draws them, because the Father knows who it is He's giving the Son. And that's why the Son never loses the ones who come, because He holds on with tenacity to the precious gift that God the Father has given to Him. MacArthur continues, we are that redeemed humanity. And that is precisely the plan of redemption that is revealed in Scripture. Wonder of wonders, the day will come when God the Father will have drawn all of the predestined and elect humanity. They will have come to faith. They will embrace Christ. Christ will hold on to them. And all of them together will arrive in glory. And they will be the love gift from the Father to the Son. And they will spend all eternity praising and honoring and serving and glorifying. Is your mind blown? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. God was up to something before anything existed. A covenant with God the Son. Jesus comes and dies to pay for our sin. And then the message of that good news comes to those whom God has chosen and they believe. And they grow in a knowledge of the truth unto godliness. And one day, we will be with Him forever. And when you say the word salvation, you really mean all of that. Now, what's the means? What is the means by which this happens? Well, let's look at verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The means 
by which all of this happens is the Word of God made known at the right time through preaching. The Word of God made known at the right time through preaching. There are three oddities that the world doubts these days. They doubt the Word of God. They don't believe that the Bible is true. They doubt God's timing of His Word. They think that, it's, that there is no such thing as a timing to God's Word. And thirdly, they doubt that the preaching of God's Word is effective. Those are three doubts that the world, the world has. Now, this preaching is personal. Paul says it's through the preaching, and it's emphasized here actually in the original, with which I myself have been entrusted. A person has to preach or proclaim. It's not somehow you get it by osmosis. There has to be a person doing the proclaiming. And the preaching has to be in accordance with the command of God our Savior. In Paul's case, God had commanded him to go and tell the Gentiles the good news of Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1.25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This preaching that Paul's talking about here in the specific case of Paul, comes from a personal and special calling of Jesus Christ to Paul. So, we need to be careful not to over-apply this text to think that God operates in exactly the same fashion with us. Otherwise, we can make two errors. First, we can conjure up a pretended call from God because it allows us to boss other people around by claiming that we've heard from God. That's spiritual abuse. But we can also make the error that since I have never received some special calling of God, I really don't have to proclaim the gospel. That is, Jesus' call to all his disciples to proclaim the good news does not really apply to me because I've never heard from Jesus telling me that directly like Paul did. Both of those are grievous errors. Spiritual abuse is a horrific thing and it comes directly from the first error, claiming to hear from God when we haven't. But the second error is, if possible, even worse, because the vast majority of Christians somehow can be led astray to think that evangelism is always someone else's business, the business of the called, the business of the professionals, the business of the gifted, the business of the extrovert. No, no, no. The means by which this grand eternal plan of salvation is accomplished is always the Word of God made known at the right time through someone proclaiming it. The goal is the hope of eternal life. The origin is all of God. The means is the Word of God made known at just the right time by the proclaiming of the gospel. So now we come to verse 4, God's operation in our lives, in our lives, is to be multiplied in others. Paul writes to Titus, called here a true child in a common faith. This is a, 
expressing the importance of being a true Christian. This word true is going to come up a few times in Titus, and he's called here a true child. That is, he's really saved. He's not faking it. And not just any faith will do. There is a common faith. That is, a, a, a set of things that are true, that are believed, that Paul and Titus share that lead to salvation, which is Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day He rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. And everyone who believes in Jesus, trusting in Him to forgive them of their sins, will not perish, but will have eternal life. And then he adds these words that are common to almost all Paul's letters, grace and peace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Paul, for all of his qualifications as a Jewish Pharisee, saw it all as rubbish. It's none of me. It's all by God's grace. Unmerited favor from God. And peace. The Old Testament word, shalom. Everything in its proper place. Titus, have the unmerited favor of God and his peace. Everything in its proper place. From God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. I want you to just note one little sidebar here. Notice that the words, our Savior, appear at the end of verse 3, speaking of God the Father. And they are used in verse 4, speaking of God the Son. The command of God our Savior, grace and peace from Christ Jesus our Savior. Who is our Savior? Is it God the Father or Jesus? The answer is yes. Who is God? God the Father or Jesus? The answer is yes. To paraphrase Gordon Fee, salvation has its origin in God the Father. Remember his plan from eternity past. But salvation is accomplished by God the Son, Jesus Christ. And of course, we would also add, energized by the Holy Spirit who brings the conviction of sin and regeneration. I don't know about you, but this is mind-blowing. It's wonderful. It's good news. The great plan of salvation which began by a covenant between or among the Trinity in eternity past now is unveiled as a message of grace and peace to one of the servants of Christ's church, a young man who has given his life to serve the triune God. Paul's operation in, God's operation in Paul's life was multiplied in others. And that's how God works. From one person to the next, to the next. It's not fast work. It is not mass communicating. It is humble and slow. One person telling another person who tells another. That's God's operation in the true Christian's life. Will you be part of God's operation? Who might you tell this week about the wonderful works of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that any here who've not put their faith in Christ, uh, faith in Christ 
might be asking the question, am I one of the elect? There's only one way for them to know, and that is to put our faith in Jesus. For when we put our faith in Jesus, then we know. We know that we belong to you. That's the That's the whole point of the proclamation of the Word of God, and so I pray that if there's anyone here who's not put their faith in Jesus, they'd say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. Grant me your eternal life. I don't deserve it. There's nothing I bring. I repent of my sin, and I come humbly before you, asking you by your blood to wash away my sins. And then, Lord, help us who are believers in Jesus to follow this pattern of your operation in the true Christian's life, to be your servants, to be sent by you, to point people to faith in Jesus, to help them grow in the knowledge of the truth, so that all of us become more like Christ with the hope of eternal life, who, that you who never lie promised before the ages began. And at just the right time, you make it known through your word, through the proclamation that Paul, and yes, by virtue of the Great Commission, we have been entrusted with. In Jesus' name, amen.